sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Do you think you might have migraine? Talk to your healthcare professional about your symptoms, the number of days they impact your life, and which treatment options might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. The Epilepsy Foundation leads the fight to overcome the challenges of living with epilepsy and to accelerate therapies, stop seizures, find cures, and save lives. Visit Epilepsy.com to find out how to get involved today. And by Norellis, a leading neuroscience company focused on the development and commercialization of therapeutics for the treatment of epilepsy and other neurologic disorders. The company's unique drug portfolios strive to address unmet needs in patient care. Learn more at Norellis.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Servin, a neurologist who practices at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. This is what's health got to do with it, which looks at where and how healthcare intersects with your life, helping you get the medical answers you want. Coming up, brain gains to improve your memory. Then, two cognitive neurology experts offer advice to improve healthy aging of your brain, especially memory. But first, anytime I hear that music from the Jason Bourne movies, I'm immediately flooded by images of a globe trotting spy, amazing chase scenes, and my family as we would go to the movie theater to watch these films together. From my viewpoint as a neurologist, this is all very meta, enjoying memories from a cherished film and novel franchise that celebrates a character who has lost his memory and is working hard to regain it. Indeed, the theme of losing and trying to recover our memories is an incredibly popular Hollywood trope and one that actually dates back to ancient Greek tragedies. As Aeschylus, the father of Greek tragedies, once wrote, Memory is the mother of all wisdom. So it should come as no surprise that preserving our memories, especially against the ravages of aging and disease like dementia, has become one of modern healthcare's greatest focus. To that end, today's program will concentrate not on the disease processes that rob us of our memories, but rather on the strategies we can take to help us strengthen our memory function and how to use the healthcare system to get there. To start us off is listener Jonelle Moraine, who did something about her memory and joined a trial called the PAC study. Janelle, welcome to our program. Thank you, thank you, I'm excited to be here. And let me first thank you because you wrote to me and gave us the idea for today's show. And I loved it because uh, what a great topic to start 2023. Can you tell me, if you don't mind, I'm gonna be very impolite, your age and, and whether you're working on outside of the house? Uh, sure, I'm almost 73 skipped first grade, so I'm the youngest of my cohort, and I work part-time for Fisher Agency. I do a lot of marketing for physicians, health systems, entrepreneurs, restaurants, the whole nine yards. I love it, uh, and 73 years young, as I would uh, yep. remind anyone uh, in that direction. Janelle, do you worry about your memory? Yes, and many of my friends think the same. Sometimes when we can't recall a name, or a memory, it's like we sit there and you have to wait till it comes from the back of your head and pushes toward the front, then you remember it. So when I read the WJCTE blast, Jack's Today, and saw the PACT program, I thought, oh, I wanna do this. Um, I think it's really important and I'm looking forward to learning my baseline. I had a little trouble with the math part, mainly because I guess we, you know, we're used to computers and, and we don't do a lot of mental math as we did a long time ago. 
but I'm excited. I go, I'm, I was accepted so far from the phone interview. Then I go for my second interview this week. So with all things uh, in the positive, I hope I can become a part of the, of the project of the research program. And it's national and the mere fact that it was with the national institutes for health um, and the national Institute on aging that gave me total validity for the effort. I, I love how you've described it. And we're going to get into the study in a moment. You know, in your email to me, you made me smile because you wrote at almost 73, if I'm going to lose my marbles, I might as well know about it early so I can complete my bucket list. Is this something that's just always on the front of your mind? Well, I think that there are times when I realize myself that I'm not quite as on point because I, I go fairly quickly and am known for it. But there's sometimes I just kind of, you know, a little hit the wall a little bit. And I've had some friends that have died from Alzheimer's. And I have a dear friend now whose husband has Louie body. And I've seen the degradation of the brain and been involved with certain programs around the country and know what, you know, they try to do with Tau and with all this other stuff that's going around that we begin to lose our mind over. And I think it's very um, timely. I think, you know, you've got the majority of Americans getting old. So I'm hoping that the folks that listen to your show will pick up the phone and call you an F and become part of the program. Got it. Let, let me just ask you one other question about yourself. Is there a family history of memory problems in your family overall no, that you know of? Uh, no, not at all. My mother died of breast cancer at uh, 53 and my father died um, of prostate cancer at 82. So not memory on either one or on either side of the family. I, I just buried my father-in-law. Of I'm course, he wasn't related that. at 105. But no, wow. I don't have any of that uh, disease that I know of anywhere in my family. Janelle, I'm going to ask you to hold on. I'm going to add another voice into our discussion uh, today. Uh, we're joined now by the University of North Florida psychologist uh, Jody Nicholson, who's the principal investigator for the University of North Florida site conducting the PAC study. She's an associate professor of psychology at the University of North Florida here in Jacksonville. Uh, Dr. Uh, Nicholson, uh, it's a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for having me. It is great to join us. Uh, can you tell us uh, what is uh, the PACT study? Sure. PACT stands for Preventing Alzheimer's with Cognitive Training. And this is a longitudinal, non-pharmaceutical Alzheimer's prevention clinical trial. As was mentioned, this study is funded by the National Institute of Aging, and it's one of the largest federally funded primary prevention dementia research studies to date. Wow, that's uh, that's huge uh, because you don't. We often are always talking about the treatments for dementia, but I don't hear too much about prevention trials for it. Right, and we always hear you got to use it or lose it, and people want to know what they can do at home, what they can do on their own. So we're really excited about to be able to contribute to the science of prevention in Alzheimer's. Let's get into uh, the PAC study itself. What is the goal of the study? What are you trying to show or prove with this uh, particular program? Sure. So the PAC study examines whether brain training can reduce the incident of mild cognitive impairment or dementia over the span of the study. And we're looking particularly at older adults who are cognitively intact at baseline. Can I, let me ask you this just so in case our listeners just need um, uh, just to know exactly what we're talking about. Can you define mild cognitive impairment and dementia just so that um, we have everyone knowing exactly what you mean by it? Yes. So dementia is the umbrella term. You hear lots of different types of dementia, so Lewy bodies or Alzheimer's. Um, and so that's when we see that there is something atypical in the cognitive processing of individuals. So we're looking for people who um, aren't don't currently have any kind of diagnosis for mild cognitive impairment or dementia or Alzheimer's. And we um, actually do a cognitive screener in our process to see where they're at baseline. Got it. So uh, at the end, um, how will this uh, 
the, the main function of this study is to try to show if you can slow this from occurring or prevent this from occurring overall? There's a lot of research going into <laughs> Alzheimer's and dementia, and there are many ways that we're trying to tackle this really large societal issue. So absolutely, right now we're looking to um, slow the onset, and we need to learn more about what can be done um, from multiple ways. So uh, like some, like Janelle was uh, mentioning about uh, joining the study, can you tell us just in general what a participant will do as part of the study? Yes. And first off, I want to just say how grateful I am for everybody who um, takes the time to see if they can be part of our study. It's really important that this is how we can learn how to help people and how to improve society largely. So the first step is um, people do a phone screener. This takes about 30 minutes. Um, that's where we can tell them more about the project and do a very brief cognitive assessment. Then we would schedule them for an in-person visit where they would do another cognitive assessment and go over the consent form. At that time, we'll, do, we'll give them some training in our brain training. Um, send them home, ask them to do some training on their own, and then we'll bring them back for another session just to be sure that they're comfortable with the training and the technology. Dr. Nicholson, is there any uh, physical piece of the study uh, that uh, is part of this program at all? I think something that's very novel about our study is we are asking if participants want that they can um, allow us to do a blood draw. Now, this isn't required to be part of our study, but we're working with the National Centralized Repository for Alzheimer's and Related Dementia, or NICRAD, and we'll be sending these blood samples there to test for biomarkers for dementia and seeing how our brain training works if people are at higher risk genetically for Alzheimer's or dementia. Janelle, I know you mentioned that you had already had a, a phone interview. How is, how is the program going so far for you and what you've done? I think it's really important to have a baseline. And I'm looking forward to these three years, again, if accepted, because it will, uh, you know, that's 73, 74, 75, 76. So um, I think it's important. And it also it's part of self-care and wellness, and health and wellness is what we're all about in our 70s. I have to agree with that point. Uh, Dr. Nicholson, I, I know that Janelle just mentioned in terms of length, but how long is the person followed for? Because, I mean, when I think about it, uh, things like malcognitive impairment and dementia, I mean, that can be a decade or 10 years or more. Right. So we're following our participants for three years. And, you know, if, if you're trying to change your body, we know that it you're going to run a marathon, it's going to take training, right? It's going to take a, a lot of time. And same thing with our brain training. We're asking people to do about 45 sessions, which can be about 45 hours across the first two years. Initially, we're asking them to commit to 25 sessions. And for most people, this can take um, around 25, 30 hours to do. So it's a really big commitment for individuals. Um, who are the candidates uh, for this study? Uh, there's a lot of people these days now, especially post-COVID or endemic to COVID, with brain fog and other conditions like fibromyalgia. Does this rule those folks out? Uh, who are these candidates? So we do go through some eligibility um, questions during the phone process and during the in-person. And there are some physical health um, diagnoses that could limit people from being part of this study. I want to uh, ask you, uh, because we only have a little time left, um, what is the best way for folks to find out more about the study uh, or contact uh, you or other uh, sites that are involved so that they can participate should they be interested? So we have multiple sites nationwide. So here we have um, two sites in Jacksonville. We have one at the University of North Florida, and we just opened a site that's downtown at UF Health with the UF College of Medicine. We're really excited about this site because it can be um, easy. It can be easier for people to get there if they live on the west side of the river. So, if people are interested in learning more about the study, they can go to our website. It's packed. P-A-C-T, study.org. 
And they can click on the UNF location if they think that that's where they'd like to go, or they can click at University of Florida and click the University of Florida Jacksonville location if that's easier for them to get to. That is great. Let, let me ask you, if, if someone is being followed as part of this study, and let's just say for whatever reason uh, it's picked up that there's a change for the worse – in terms of memory function, how is that handled? So at the third study visit, we will test the participants' memory again. Um, so this is three years after they start the study. And if we find that their performance has declined, then we'll ask them to undergo further testing and see a study physician. So it's possible that the study researcher will inform the participant of that finding and provide them a, with a copy of the test. And at that point, we would recommend that they take that information to a medical expert for further review and diagnosis. And to all of our listeners out there, you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and if you're just joining us, this is our Healthy Memory Show, and we want to hear from you. If you have an idea for future shows, tweet me at jservin. Dr. Nicholson, are there any risks for participating in this study? The risks are minimum. We do... We do know that sometimes um, the study tests, the questions, the computer training, they can be boring, distressing, frustrating, fatiguing. Sometimes they can cause anxiety. But this, um, we find, is, is pretty minimal. Got it. Um, if uh, individuals uh, want to participate, and I know you gave us a, a few uh, locations, are is Jacksonville uh the only city or are there other site visit site locations for this outside of the Jacksonville air metro area? So we have um, great representation in Florida. This was actually founded out of the University of South Florida and there are multiple locations across the Tampa region. In addition, UF Gainesville has a site. And then outside of Florida, Clemson and Duke are both participating in the PACT study. Well, so it's very southeast uh, in this it direction. Is. Uh, Dr. Nicholson, I want to give you one uh, more uh, uh, opportunity. Uh, if there's anything else you want to add that we may not have talked about uh, so far so that our listeners have that information. We are just grateful for people um, contributing to our study. Uh, we couldn't do it without our participants. We are looking to get uh, 1,300 participants at our site, and wow. we are over halfway there. So we've gotten great response from the Jacksonville community, and I think the Jacksonville community has a lot to offer in terms of helping us to learn more about Alzheimer's dementia and preventing it. Uh, no cost to the persons that participate, right? Correct. No costs. Uh, Janelle, is there anything else uh, you want to make sure that our listeners out there uh, know about the program and that you want to share uh, before uh, we finish up today? I think it's something that anybody my age or older or perhaps slightly younger, say 65 plus, I suppose, um, should really take a look at it and see if there's an interest. I like the idea at the end of three years, you get a CAT scan or an MRI too. Um, I really believe in the uh, the self-care piece. And I think this is a valuable program. And if you are interested in participating and helping and do something good, this is it. I think that I can't wait to take the, uh, the test. I think the computer test will be a lot of fun. I just joined the guardian has a new one. That's like Wordle. So I just did that, started that one today. I love those computer programs and the, the games. So I'm ready. Uh, Janelle, I have to, uh, I love uh, your attitude and I love uh, this whole focus uh, on uh, the self-help. I just want to thank you so much uh, for, number one, for joining us, number two, for uh, reaching out to me and uh, and proposing this show. I love it and uh, I just love uh, your attitude about uh, the whole thing. 
talk to you in a year if I'm accepted. <laughs> you can follow me. We have you on the list. We make sure that you'll be that first guest. Uh, Dr. Nicholson, I want to thank you so much also uh, for joining us. Uh, I wish you the very best in getting all those patients into the study. This is very exciting. Thank you. We've been talking to Janelle Mulrane. She is a listener who uh, recently joined the PAC study here in Jacksonville. And to Dr. Nicholson, she is the principal investigator for the University of North Florida site conducting the PAC study here in Jacksonville. She's an associate professor of psychology at the University of North Florida in Jacksonville, Florida. Up next, two cognitive neurologists join us to help provide the best tips for memory health. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and this is What's Health Got to Do With It? We now add two expert voices on the topic of preserving healthy memory function. Dr. Gregory Day is an assistant professor of neurology and a behavioral neurologist at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville. And Dr. Neil Graf Radford. He's a professor of neurology also at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, and a practicing behavioral neurologist. Dr. Day, Dr. Neil Graff-Radford, welcome to our program. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, thank you for the opportunity. It is great to have you both back, uh, but we're going to be talking about a different topic today. We're talking about memory, and let's just get right into this. Uh, Dr. Day, is, is memory one thing or is it multiple? Well, it's a tricky question. I think for most of us, we conceive of memory as one entity. So people will say that they have a problem with their memory or their memory is not working. And what we generally mean by that is we can't recall what it is we expect ourselves to be able to remember. That might be that feeling we get when you walk into the room and can't find something you look for. It might be not remembering a conversation that you had a few days ago or maybe six months ago, maybe two years ago. And so memory uh, for most of our patients and most individuals is simply just that, the ability to recall or remember. But there's many different factors, many different uh, elements and functions of the brain that underlie our ability to remember. And so while we can conceive of memory at perhaps as sort of one entity, there's a number of different factors that need to be intact in order for that one entity to work well. Dr. Graf Rafford, um, one of the questions that often comes up is this concept of working memory. What is working memory and how is that different from other types of memory, if you will? So um, we should think of um, memory like Dr. Day was saying, as different types of memory, and working memory might be regarded as one of those. Let me tell you about the types of memory that are important for your audience to understand. So there's the memory of learning new information. We call it anterograde, learning new information. And the uh, type of memory is, that's the type of memory that's commonly affected in diseases like Alzheimer's disease. So when a person has anterograde memory problem, the type of uh, questions that we would ask their spouse is, does that patient ask you the same question again? Do, do they have trouble learning uh, new information or remember what happened uh, recently? So that's anterograde memory. Uh, immediate memory is the type of memory, you know, somebody says, this is the phone number, dial it, and you quickly dial it, and then you didn't get through, and you say, well, what was that number? That's like immediate memory. It's like a, it records short for a short time and then uh, dissipates. Um, and, and that um, is uh, what I would call immediate memory. And then there is the memory um, which goes under the name procedural memory. It's knowing how to do things. 
and everybody is very familiar with uh, getting in a car and driving. But before we drive, we've done six or seven things. We put the seat belt on, we put the key in, put our foot on the accelerator, um, change the gear, etc. And we know how to do that. Or typing. You may not even know where the letters are, but your mind seems to know where they are. Then you know how. Another good example is of how memory is to play a musical instrument. People may not remember um, the song, but suddenly it comes back to them as they play their particular um, instrument. So that's knowing how to do things. And the reason that these are different memories is that the anatomical underpinnings of these types of memory are different. The anterograde memory is very heavily involved with a part of the brain called the hippocampus, and that is where Alzheimer's attacks. The procedural memory of knowing how to do things doesn't affect the hippocampus. It affects the primary areas, the basal ganglia and the cerebellum, which don't have much Alzheimer's disease. So the how memory is often preserved in diseases like Alzheimer's disease. So the different types of memory have different anatomical underpinnings and present different, uh, different clinical uh, syndromes. Dr. Day, is, and, and to kind of take up on that theme, uh, Dr. Graf Raffer just pointed out a beautiful description of the different types of memory. Is memory different than attention? Well, I think the answer to that is yes. And and when we talk about the different systems that we need to be in good working order for us to have memory, no matter what type of memory, attention is one of those systems. And so how I usually conceive of this, if I want to really break it down into sort of simple terms, is thinking of things like a computer. You've got hard drive space uh, and whole processes in the computer, the hardware that takes in new information, stores it, and pulls it back out again. That's critical for memory to work. We need to be able to pull in information, store it, and then importantly index that in a way that allows us to get it back out in a good amount of time when we want access to that information. But then we have a whole bunch of things in our computer, what we might think of as RAM or other systems that allow us to do that uh, in different scenarios. And, and we all have experiences using old computers that where those systems aren't working so well we know how long it can take to store information or pull it back out again and attention is sort of like that second layer of things that we need and attention doesn't come from sort of any one specific area of the brain it's actually the cumulative effects of a number of areas of the brain and a number of different factors can affect attention and if we're not able to pay attention if we can't focus on what's in front of us, the information that, that, that we need, we may not be able to encode it. So we can see people who have problems with attention, and what they'll tell us is they have problems with memory, when in fact their memory systems might work very well. Uh, it's really the difficulty is maintaining that, maintaining that focus, and there's different disorders that can affect attention, and things that we might need to be treating to allow our patient's memory to function as best as possible. Dr. Graf Radford, is memory loss inevitable as we age? I mean, is that just the course of the human brain? What's going to happen? No, it's not inevitable. In fact, there's some incredible um, older folks that have remarkable memories. Um, so um, I, I, I remember recently a patient of 102 who absolutely aced all of our memory tests. And she has this remarkable memory that if she met you and you told her something about your life or family, next time you saw her, she would remember and ask about them. Uh, so it's not inevitable, uh, but it is true that as we age, our uh, cognitive abilities uh, aren't as good as when we were younger. Those are particularly on timed tests. So we not our reaction times and our uh, speeded tests, uh, the tests that we time people to do, um, we just don't do as well as when we were uh, younger. Um, so uh, that's one of the things about um, aging and memory. 
Got it. Uh, Dr. Day, uh, let me play the flip side. Uh, We are still very much now uh, living in our transition of uh, being endemic to COVID. I'm curious, are we seeing more younger patients with memory issues, uh, including brain fog post-COVID now? We're definitely seeing more patients with memory complaints, whether we whether those actually shake down to be memory issues or maybe more problems with attention that can come from social isolation, from sleep deficits, from medication use or other disorders like depression and anxiety that has also gone up over this pandemic period. Uh, but we are definitely seeing people with more with more kinds of more kinds of complaints, and I think memory fog is is something that we're investigating and trying to decide. You know, how is that related to COVID? Is it something to do with all the other aforementioned factors? Is it something to do with the virus itself? Are there other factors that could be at play? Could be at play there. Um, and looking for strategies to address that um, has been has been a challenge that's that's facing the field. I think what we're looking for here is you know how do we optimize brain health. That's been a great topic of your of your show in the past. Uh, we can all do things that can improve our sleep, that can improve our diet. We can exercise more. We can look for underlying disorders that can affect attention and can affect memory. Maybe that's sleep apnea that could be untreated. Maybe that's depression or anxiety, as I'm alluding to, or a medicine that we've started for one condition or another that you know, probably isn't, isn't helping us out. And so uh, we hear these complaints. We look for contributing factors. At the end of the day, we still have patients that have the complaints that we can't find a contributing factor. And, and we're trying to understand the mechanisms behind the virus itself or everything else that goes on around a pandemic that could be, could be underlying those important complaints from our patients. I want to make sure I ask this question uh, because this is the type of question I get uh, at any dinner party, at, uh, at holiday functions, which are differing scenarios that really provokes anxiety in people when they go through the scenarios. So I want to kind of go through these scenarios and, and ask a simple question. When should you worry or should you not worry about this? Should it happen to you? So Dr. Graff, I'm going to start with you with the most common of all. I can't find my car in the parking lot. Do you worry or not worry? So um, that one, to my mind, is most often related to attention. So um, the, the way I describe it is that when you park your car, your body might be there but your mind might be elsewhere. You are not in the present. And so you didn't make the memory of where you parked your car. And instead you rushed off to wherever you were going to the supermarket and you came out and said, now, where did I park my car? So you weren't in your mind at the time that you parked it. You need to be in the present Otherwise, you look like you have a memory problem. So I'm taking it, it not to worry too much uh, in in most of that in in that scenario. Correct. Fair enough, Doctor Day. Uh, another favorite. I forgot what I was what I was about to do, and now I'm in another room. Right. And this one I hear all the time. I hear it at home and I hear myself saying the same complaints <laughs> at different moments. And I, I'm going to just revisit what Dr. Graf Radford said. I think this is another great example where in so many of those scenarios, we're not actually paying attention. We came into that room, but while we came into that room to get whatever it was we were looking for, we were actually running through three different tasks, activities, planning what we had to do next or worried about what else there was to do on the day. Or maybe our spouse or family member yelled at us as we were going to the other room and put our mind on a different track. And so I'll say that usually this one isn't so worrisome. I think with both this and the previous scenario, the one thing that can present reason for worry is if this problem starts to happen consistently. And so if this is the one-off that happens at different points throughout the day, uh, you know, but in between that, memory's functioning pretty normally and we're not seeing day-to-day complaints, not so much cause for worry. If we're forgetting our car on a continual basis, uh, maybe forgetting our car uh, in the parking lot and taking an Uber or taxi home, that's a big problem, uh, particularly if that's happening more and more <laughs> right. again. But if it's the one-off problem, I, I think this analogy or the statement that we're just not in our body at that moment is probably the best explanation and not something that I'd worry too much about. Dr. Graff-Rafford, I have another one uh, that uh, seems to provoke concerns for our listeners. Uh, I can't remember your name after we met. Yeah, 
that's a very common normal um, item. Um, so uh, names are one of the hardest things uh, for um, people to re uh, remember. There are a few very talented individuals who just amazing at remembering names. Uh, but most of us, um, because there's uh, so many uh, names that we come across and matching people to the name is the difficult part of the brain. Um, so not remembering names, um, one of the tricks um, that uh, good uh, conscientious people who want to remember names, when they meet somebody, they practice it. They say, so your name is Dr. Joe Servan. Hi, Dr. Servan, how are you? <laughs> you know, <laughs> keep saying Joe Servan a few times and then everybody, then you seem to be able to remember it. But mostly we, when we're introduced, the funny thing is we listen for our own name. We don't listen for the other person's name. Uh, you'll see if you, that's, if you, uh, if you do that exercise, you'll see that that's true. And because of that, we don't necessarily remember it. Okay. Uh, again, the qualification is uh, what uh, Dr. Day was saying, you know, uh, how consistent is it new? Uh, did this, um, were you always able to remember people's names? But now you can't remember. And, uh, it, you know, so those are uh, some qualifications but mostly you wouldn't worry about it. I love that tip. I'm going to try it today. Dr. Day, I have one more example uh, that I want to ask you that also concerns our listeners. I can't remember what I had for dinner last night. Yeah, another another popular one that I hear a lot about. And I think this, again, kind of relates to how important is it to you to remember what you had for dinner last <laughs> night? And as Dr. Graf Radford was saying, you know, really what what invested interest did you have in, in recalling that? So this is more of a concerning complaint when it's coming to me from a food critic, someone who was <laughs> sent to a restaurant and couldn't remember that task the next day and now might lose their job from it. It's less a concern when you're forgetting mom's spaghetti and meatballs that, uh, that may have just made its way onto the menu the night before. And so I think in these scenarios, again, it comes back to consistency. Uh, is this something that's happening all the time? And is it having a cost on the, on the patient uh, in a really disruptive way? And, and every time we're talking about this, it's an opportunity to really think about, well, how invested were you in that? Were you providing the energy, the attention that's needed to remember that and to focus on that. And if for some reason it's really important that you remember those details, I think some of the tips Dr. Graf Radford provided, kind of repeating that, associating that uh, that meal with something else, maybe a great conversation or a new story that was shared uh, can be it can be a good tip and trick to, to try to remember those details. But for the most part, getting back to your original question, this isn't something that we worry about uh, in its own context, particularly when it's an isolated complaint. To all of our listeners out there, you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Dr. Joe Servin. If you're just joining us, this is our Healthy Memory Show, and we want to hear from you. If you have an idea for future shows, tweet me at jservin. Dr. Graf Radford, uh, when I turn on the TV, if I go to the internet, for some reason I am completely... Uh, distracted by ads for supplements to improve my memory, Prevagen, and many other similar products. Um, what role does supplements have in improving memory, if at all? There's so many of them. Right. Um, there's no evidence that those supplements, there's no uh, proven evidence that those supplements really improve your memory. Um, I think that um, some of the healthy lifestyles that you can do without taking supplements um, have pretty good evidence um, that they uh, could improve your memory, such as um, aerobic exercise, uh, doing 150 minutes of aerobic exercise per week. Um, it, it, there is evidence that that actually might be very helpful for your memory in the long run. Um, so I don't recommend um, uh, any supplements. Having just said that, <laughs> yes. About last month, there was a paper showing um, uh, that um, a, they were doing a study on um, chocolate, and one of the placebos was a multivitamin. Huh. 
And it turns that in the placebo group, the ones taking the multivitamins, memory actually improved. I don't know if that, uh, that was published by Laura Baker. I, I don't know if that's going to prove out to be true in the future. But um, if you want to take a supplement, I think uh, one multivitamin a day or a B-complex a day would be fine. Um, but I, there isn't any evidence on the uh, ones that we are bombarded with by uh, on television. Understood. Dr. Day, are there any memory-enhancing foods? We just heard about the possibility of chocolate, uh, but are there any memory-enhancing foods or diets uh, that uh, listeners are often asking about? So similar to what we're talking about with supplements, none that are really backed by what we'll call that high-quality level of evidence. Um, but there are some foods, there are some diets that really go hand in hand with this entity of brain health with focusing on kind of doing what's best for our blood vessels. Usually things that are good for the heart are going to be good for the brain as well. That over time, especially when it's part of the healthy lifestyle that goes with many of these diets can probably increase blood flow to the brain and increase the blood leaving the brain that may help to remove some of those proteins that can build up and may build up more as we age that may end up having over time again detrimental effects on memory. And so what diets are those? Well, that tends to be the Mediterranean diet that has probably the best quality of evidence. And that's a diet that at least for us Floridians isn't so hard to come by. It's higher in fresh fruits, vegetables, lots of good fish, a little lower in red meat. And to sweeten the deal, uh, you can include a glass of red wine with that. But generally not more than a glass if we're going to stick to the stick to the true recommendations of the diet. Let me uh, switch the uh, the topic just slightly. And Dr. Graff-Ratford, uh, we are also very much completely swallowed in our tech, phones, computers, uh, whatever. What role does tech play in memory? Is this a help or a hindrance? I think it could be both depends on how you use it. Um, I think um, that, you know, you can certainly um, learn a lot um, in and do a lot of reading and do a lot of puzzles um, on tech. There is, um, or uh, you can, uh, there's a study um, on crossword, doing crossword puzzles that are is particularly helpful, but that's not necessarily tech, but there are games that people play and that keep your mind uh, involved and active. So that is um, the positive side, but some people are um, distracted (laughs) and spend so much time um, on, uh, on the internet or on social media that, um, they don't seem to do much else uh, compared to that they uh, don't do the usual um, healthy things like socialize and um, uh, uh, exercise and um, do other important things. So I think um, people who spend hours and hours on it, um, that's a problem. I think people who are gamers, and there are lots out there, particularly younger folks, they can get very skilled at um, uh, that, uh, you know, that kind of technique. But, you know, overdoing it, on the other hand, uh, may be a drain on uh, people's time and, and health. So I think there needs to be a balance. And I think some of the help, using some of the healthy things is a good idea. Um, and diminishing the amount of um, stuff that uh, takes and drains your time. Dr. J, what about sleep? Uh, we're talking about balance. Uh, how important is sleep for brain uh, function, particularly memory? So I'm going to put sleep in the critically important category. We spoke early on about attention. I think you don't have to really think, you don't have to go search for people to that can give you the opinion on what happens to your memory and your attention if you don't get a good night's sleep. We've certainly all experienced that, particularly anyone with young kids has maybe had years of, of poor sleep and knows that that can affect attention and memory. And so sleep is really critical. 
simply to the function of memory and to all the brain processes that are going to drive our ability to pay attention to details and code those details and pull them back out again later. So really important. Um, maybe even more than that, I think we've learned a lot over the last decade or so about how sleep may also, or poor sleep, may affect or increase our risk of developing diseases of the brain over time that can affect memory. And so sleep may in part be related to Alzheimer's disease. Poor sleep and things like sleep apnea might increase our risk for Alzheimer's disease or might accelerate declines in people who already have signs of that disease. Uh, and increasingly, we know that poor sleep, especially when it's coming from breathing problems, can affect the blood vessels. And so it's a risk factor for heart disease, but it's also a risk factor for stroke. And, and stroke and heart disease together uh, can also affect memory and affect brain function. And so whenever we can, we want to be focused on how we can improve our sleep, treating, screening for and treating diseases if they exist, and getting that sort of right number of sleep or how many hours are required. And that's a little bit different for for every adult out there, but generally we're talking about something between that seven to eight hours of sleep a night for most people. Since you just brought up the issue of diseases, particularly Alzheimer's, the FDA just approved a new drug for Alzheimer's dementia only last week called lecanemab. Dr. Graf-Raffer, what does this do for memory, if anything? Uh, thank you. for This is a very important question. Uh, this particular drug is an antibody that we infuse and it goes into the brain and removes a protein called the amyloid protein. It was found after 18 months that it slowed down the progression of the disease by 27%. It has quite a lot of side effects and it has to be extremely carefully monitored. Dr. Day, you want to add to that? I think I'll add just a little bit of the practical implications for this. We are excited about this approval. I know our patients are very excited and we're looking forward to determining what this really means for people with Alzheimer's disease. But I think as Dr. Graf Radford's alluded, we know a little bit about how this medication works. We know in the clinical trials what it's what it's accomplished. Um, what we don't yet know is how, uh, how easy is it going to be for our patients to get it and how are we going to make sure that the right people get this medication. And This is an IV infusion medicine, so that's going to require people to be in close contact with their doctors. There are certain side effects that are going to need to be really closely monitored. And right now, the approval that you're referencing is what's called accelerated approval. And so the FDA has granted approval for this medication based on the premise that Dr. Graf Radford just related, that it removes a protein in the brain and that we think that protein is important for Alzheimer's disease. And so removing it, we think, is going to be a good thing. Um, but Medicare has made it pretty clear that they're not likely to cover medications that are approved under accelerated approval. And so it's going to be key, uh, and I think we're going to see this even in the next year, that the FDA review the full data set for this drug. And I imagine the companies providing that data to the FDA now uh, that might lead to what we'll call full approval, sort of a more traditional approval pathway for medicines. And if that comes through, then we have a medication that's exciting, it's got some real potential, and it may be accessible to our patients. For our listeners uh, who are thinking about the dollar value of this medicine, well, there's a bit of a sticker shock here, but it's $26,500 a year is the projected cost. And so a lot of things to think on as we learn how to use this medicine, as we wait on that final, hopefully full approval, uh, and as we find out who it's going to work best in. So stay tuned. One more question just uh, to wrap this up in our final moments that we have left. Um Dr. Graf Radford, I'll ask you first and then I'll ask Dr. Day. At what point should someone seek medical attention for a memory issue? What, what advice do you have for the listener? Um, I think one of the key, uh, very important points is when other people notice that a person has a memory problem, that is a, a, a time that they should definitely uh, seek um, an evaluation. Um, often people with memory problems don't really have good insights themselves as to the memory issue, uh, but when other people notice it, that's a must. 
Dr. Day, what's, uh, what uh, advice do you have for our listeners on this question? I, I mean, I think what Dr. Graf Redford said is perfectly, perfectly correct. We really value the input of other people around us. Um, and part of that is, I think, again, when these problems start to become consistent, it's not that once in a while where you walk out of the supermarket and can't find your car, but it's happening more often and in more circumstances. So it's not just the car, it's also forgetting to take medications or maybe forgetting to pay a bill, something that may not have happened before, or maybe paying a bill twice and something else that we would, would think about and question about. And so consistent problems that are apparent to others and that have a cost that get in the way of daily activities are definitely the ones that we want to be assessing patients for. But you know what, if you're worried about your memory and you've got a doctor a health professional that you trust, go ahead and get an assessment. Good, good people, I think, can allay worries and can tell you what might just be a normal consequence of getting a little bit older or maybe what might relate to some other underlying disorder, be it sleep apnea, depression, or concurrent medication use, that making a treatment coming up with a plan there could, uh, could actually improve your brain health going forward and help your memory. We're going to let that be the last uh, thought for the show. I want to thank you, uh, Dr. Greg Day, and you, Dr. Neil Graf Radford, for your terrific advice and wisdom today. I feel like my memory's improving already after all of this terrific uh, information you've given us. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. It's been wonderful. We've been talking to uh, Dr. Gregory Day and Dr. Neil Graf Radford. Both are cognitive behavioral neurologists that work at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. Well, that's our program for today. We hope you've enjoyed our show. If you missed anything, you can listen to the full episode at WJCT.org and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to all of our guests. Our executive producer is David Luckin. Heather Schatz is our senior producer. Brendan Rivers is our producer. Isabella Da Silva is our director. Next week's program is a special show devoted to navigating the emergency room. If you have questions about this or any topic, let us know by calling us at 904-358-6362, email us at health at wjct.org, or tweet me at jservin. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9 Jacksonville. Thank you for listening, and stay in touch. Sweet memories, memories. Sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Is migraine impacting your life or daily activities four or more days per month? If so, ask your healthcare professional if you are a candidate for migraine prevention treatments and which ones might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at American Brain Foundation and by the Epilepsy Foundation leads the fight to overcome the challenges of living with epilepsy and to accelerate therapies, stop seizures, find cures, and save lives. Visit epilepsy.com to find out how to get involved today.